Uh, as we do in the beginning of the message, I would love to get your input, shouting out in the room or chatting or um, or unmuting online. I think we're able to do that today. Not certain, actually. Um, but I want to talk for a minute about things that are either fragile or unstoppable and things that have great value or little value. And I'm going to give you some examples that I would love for you to help think about this. So um, if we start with that first square, uh, fragile things that have little value. Um, I'm thinking like a beach sandcastle. Right? It's very fragile. Uh, it won't take much for it to fall down and disappear. It's going to be guaranteed to go away. And especially if I've made it, it's a very little value. Um, unstoppable and of little value. Um, I hope nobody's offended by this. Cockroaches. Um, they're of little value, but they can handle, I don't know, something like 10,000 times as much radiation as a human being can survive. Right? And so these cockroaches, they will survive when nothing else will. They're unstoppable. But in my book, they're not that much value. Now, there are some things that are fragile and of great value. And an example for me of this is an infant. Right? This, is, this infant is of great value, yet very fragile. Um, yeah, concern, don't know, right? Is it, are we going to take good care of this child? Is it going to fall? How is this going to work out? And then, okay, so you get a, a picture into my world. Something of great value that's unstoppable is a tunnel boring machine. Right? These devices are unstoppable. They will drill through anything. And, and just giant holes in rock, and they're super expensive. But nothing can stop them. Right? They're going to get through. Okay, so I want to back up and get your help. So what's something else that is fragile and is of little value? What would you say? Bubbles. Bubbles. Yeah. Bubbles, excellent. So fragile. Won't last very long. Good. Anything else that's fragile and of little value? Cheap windshield wipers. Cheap windshield wipers. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that you could buy very inexpensively. Um, and it might be pretty fragile. Yeah. Yeah. How about something that is unstoppable, yet of little value. Other than a cockroach, what else would you say? Dandelions. Dandelions. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Little value, but boy, it is so hard to stop them. Yeah. There's a political statement there. No. Um, yeah, so there's certainly technologies, right? There are some things that's just, how are we going to get rid of this? Maybe can't. Not sure what it's worth. Okay, how about fragile things of great value? Any ideas? An ah, yes, an instrument. Good, yeah. It's amazing what some of these instruments cost. Great value. Boy, we got to take care of them. Anything else you think of? Some relationships. I was going to say that. There are some relationships very valuable. Why are they fragile? Right? A 
little bit can upset them. And, yeah. Anything else? China. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They like the uh, like the, the fine dishes and yeah. Yeah. How about what are some things that are great value that are unstoppable? What was that? The tide. The tide. Yeah, excellent. Something of great value. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of things in the natural world that maybe the sun coming up. Right? We're not going to stop that. It's a great value to us. Yes. What was that? Yes. Floods. Ah, uh, yeah, they're very significant. Yeah, very costly. Yeah. I want to think for a minute about the work of God. And I would say, clearly, the work of God has great value, right? We would say, boy, it is so valuable, it's so important. But I want to ask the question, is the work of God fragile or unstoppable? And how do you think about that? So when you think about the work of God in the world, do you see it as being fragile, threatened by powers and things that get in the way, or is it unstoppable? When you think about the church, Globally. If you think of the church as being fragile, the victim of so many different things, including the people of the church that keep getting in the way and, and harming this church. And, and so we look at the church and say, look at that, the church is unstoppable. And we say, boy, this is fragile. And I think, our church. Right? Do we look at this and say, oh, unstoppable? Or do we say, oh, it's kind of, you know, we're. What do we look at when we say, what are the threats? And many churches wrestled with this through the pandemic. Say, is this church going to survive this? Is it unstoppable? Or is there a risk here? How about a brand new Christian? Right? You say, oh, the work of God is unstoppable here. Or do we think, oh, this is a really important time. What's going to happen? And then specifically in you and in me. Do we look at the work of God and say, look at that, that's unstoppable? Or do we look at that and think, wow, it's pretty fragile. We better hope the right things happen. I want to take a minute to pray. And you'll see clearly the direction that I'm going. It's not a surprise. But I want to pray that God would help us to see and to believe the unstoppable work of God in Christ. Not just to know it as an idea, but to have it as a conviction that the work of God in Christ is something that cannot be stopped. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the love that we know in Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word, uh, the Bible, that you've expressed yourself in human language so we can understand Father, we ask today that you would help us to understand the work of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring in us a deep conviction, that you would restore in us and build up in us a confidence and a boldness because of the power of our Savior, because his work is unstoppable. So we ask that you do that work today. Give us hearts to hear and call us to walk in boldness in doing as he did. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, the title today is Something New. We continue going through Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 22. 
encourage you to have that uh, passage open in front of you. Uh, I will have it on the screen. Um, and it's a, it's a, a much of a chapter, uh, so we'll read through that together. We'll talk more about this drawing in a few minutes. Um, and just as a reminder, there are handouts that may be helpful both online um, and in the room. Uh, to make sense of this passage, let me step back to this chapter from Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah uh, 31 talks about the covenant relationship between God and people. Uh, so Jeremiah 31, verse 31, let me read this for us. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Just highlight a couple of things from this. The, 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 the passage, these words from God through Jeremiah, refer to a new covenant. And so, so it refers also then to an old covenant. And he, he describes this covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It says, in the past, I went and I rescued them from their time of slavery. I, I formed them as a people. I revealed myself to them and I gave them a land. And a key thing to celebrate this is he gave the Passover, this celebration of God's deliverance. But you know, there's a funny thing about Passover. The core celebration in Passover is not how God rescued the people from Egypt. You know what the Passover is, right? The Passover was sacrifice this lamb for your household. And what was the lamb sacrificed for? It was to protect the people from the angel of death. See, God didn't say, you're a great people. And because you're such a great people, I'm going to judge those bad people, the Egyptians. And you'll be rescued because you're good people. He didn't say, I'm going to rescue you because you're descendants of Abraham and they're not. He said, I'm going to rescue you, not because you're good or that you're better. I'm going to rescue you if you will trust me enough to make a sacrifice to me, to take something valuable to you and kill this lamb and then put this blood on the door. And when you do that, then this angel of judgment, this angel of death, will pass over. And so he says, here's this old covenant of God rescuing his people, not because they were of a certain lineage, but because they trusted his provision for forgiveness. But the sad thing is, God says, they broke my covenant. They didn't keep this. God said, here's what you're going to do. I'll be your God, and you won't have other gods. And over and over again, they had other gods. Over and over again, they trusted in other things. Over and over again, God said, they have broken my covenant. And so God said, the time is coming when I'm going to make a new covenant. 
Right? And so he highlights in this passage there's going to be something new that happens, and I love this. Right? What, what happened when Moses came down from the mountain with the expression of God's will? God says, here's my will. Here's what it is to know me. And God wrote it on tablets of stone. And God said, a time is coming when I'm going to start a new covenant, and with this covenant, I'm going to write it on your heart. It's not going to be an external thing that you hear about. I'm going to change the core of your being. He says it's not going to be that you have to go around and say, you should know the Lord, because he says, you know what, everybody's going to know me from the least to the greatest. Because he says, I'm going to forgive your wickedness. I'm going to remember your sins no more. He says there was that old covenant, but I'm, I'm creating a new covenant where there's going to be something profoundly different. Because God's going to fulfill that covenant for us. And so then we have the Passover to celebrate the Old Covenant, and Jesus then gives us the Lord's Supper to celebrate the New Covenant. So we're going to look at that today as Jeremiah predicted. There's God predicted through Jeremiah. And let me, let me point then even further forward to the greatest celebration of this New Covenant. Isaiah says, let me tell you about the time that's coming. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isaiah looked ahead and said there's going to be a feast, there's going to be a celebration of this new covenant that will be for all peoples. This isn't just going to be for one people group, this is going to be for all peoples who will trust him, and he will swallow up death forever. He says there's going to be a feast, a celebration that is beyond your imagination for how wonderful it is. Isaiah was looking forward to that. And I'm convinced, but as we'll look at today, Jesus celebrated the Passover by giving it a new meaning and anticipating the final feast, this final overwhelming feast. All good news, except for one thing. Satan and sin were working to keep it from happening. This is the last thing that Satan wanted to happen. The, the opponent of God and of his people said, I'm not going to allow this. I'm going to stop this. And sin and people also got in the way over and over. And so what we look at today in this chapter is Jesus doing this great work of saying, I'm going to start this new covenant and it's going to lead to this great celebration. And Satan and sin repeatedly tried to stop it. So let's walk through this together. Luke 22, just starting at verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. But they were afraid of the people. So stop there for a second. Luke in this section tells us repeatedly, remember this is Passover. (laughs) You'll see this as we read through this. Remember this is Passover. Right? This, this celebration of God's deliverance of the people from judgment. And as they were getting ready for it, the religious leaders sought to kill Jesus. They said, we've got to get rid of him. The religious leaders, right? the Jewish religious leaders, 
for the very work that God was fulfilling in his promises, they said, no, we want to kill it. We want to stop it. They said, we've got to do it privately. Because they were afraid of the people. See, Jerusalem was the place to kill Jesus for them. Jerusalem is a place where they had power, where there were Roman soldiers gathered all the time, and so and the, the governor, and, and this is a place where they, they had sway. So when the religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus, they want to do it in Jerusalem. Because that's where their power is. And and we discovered Jesus actually didn't come to Jerusalem very often. Different gospels describe as as not as being different numbers of times, but in Luke, the whole book is leading up to Jesus coming back to Jerusalem. From their perspective, he's rarely there, he's likely to leave soon. And yet Jesus came at a time when Jerusalem was super crowded and the crowds were volatile. They could easily riot. And they liked Jesus. So the religious leaders said, here's our problem. We've got to kill Jesus when he's in Jerusalem, because that's where we can do it. But he's here when all these crowds that love him are here. And so we don't know what to do. We've got to find a solution. The religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. And so then verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Judas, could, who he knew enough, he could figure out a time when Jesus was in the, the area of Jerusalem when no crowds were around and they couldn't figure this out any other way, but Judas had the inside information. But these troubling words, Satan entered Judas. The opponent of God, the, the, the one who is fighting against what God wants to do, everywhere and anywhere he can, Satan entered Judas. Now Satan's not a physical being, so he's not like there were some molecules that were in Judas, but clearly Satan took advantage of Judas's desire. Because we're told from the beginning, he was working against Jesus. He was stealing from Jesus. He was opposed to Jesus from the beginning. And Satan took advantage of that and held sway over him, had influence over him. And so then Judas comes and says to the religious leaders, I can help you. And the key thing was to find a time when no crowd is present. And Judas knew how to do that. So, Judas was the means to kill Jesus, prompted by Satan. And this was the challenge, to find a time to kill Jesus. When he was in the area of Jerusalem and the crowds weren't present. And I think this is why it's significant that every every night, Jesus left the area of Jerusalem to go up onto the the Mount of Olives. Because at night they could arrest him. Because no crowds would be around. But he was out beyond their precincts. Perhaps that's why it was significant. Every night he left out, and every morning, all the crowds were there again. So Judas says, I'll help you find a time. So verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Preparations for this great feast, right? This time of, of, of gathering, and it had to be in Jerusalem. That was the, those were the, the guidelines that you had to celebrate this feast in Jerusalem. So they're going to come into the city, but they were in the city sneaking around, it seems. You know, go in and find somebody, and it was unusual for a man to be carrying a water jar, and he was there to meet them. Took them to a house that clearly was preparing for Jesus and his disciples to be there, but secretly, so that people wouldn't know. No crowds around, and yet Jesus said, we're going to do this secretly, just as Jesus had told them. And this sounds very much like Palm Sunday, when Jesus sent two disciples ahead to get the, uh, the, the, the colt that they, he was going to ride on, and everything happened just as he said. And so here we see the movement again. Jesus is in charge. And Jesus and the apostles prepared for Passover. So then verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And take, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Just to highlight two things here. Twice he says, this is in anticipation of the kingdom of God. And I'm with you in this celebration. And there's debate as to whether or not Jesus actually ate anything. Because it's not entirely clear. The, the, the New International Version actually puts the word again in there. That's not in other texts. And so there's debate about it. But what's not a debate is that Jesus said, this is prepared for this fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to drink again of the, the fruit of the vine until this kingdom of God. You might notice that it starts with the cup. And it's different from how we generally practice it. And, and I love the fact that it's different. The Lord's Prayer is recorded a little bit differently in different places to tell us the point isn't exactly these words in this order. Jesus taught how to pray. He didn't teach here the exact words to use. And so I appreciate that in the celebration of communion, Luke tells it a little bit differently. There are two cups and, and the bread in between. The point isn't the exact order of a ritual. The point is what it points to. And so then, the next verse, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So stop there for a second. This is a key spot where he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Right? The blood of the Passover was the blood of a lamb to rescue all the firstborn kids. Now, the firstborn of God is sacrificed to, re to re uh, rescue all those who will trust in him. So here Jesus gave the new Passover, and he was the sacrifice. 
just want to highlight something for you that uh, was really significant for me this week in, in encountering people who read things in ways that I'm not used to. Uh, really helpful, some different commentaries. I've been broadening my own sense of understanding how to understand God's word. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this. What's the this? Well, certainly the this is celebrating the Lord's Supper. Right? It certainly includes that. Do this ceremony in remembrance of me. Yet I was challenged to realize that this also includes what Jesus was representing. And that is the giving of our bodies in service to others in thanks to God. Jesus broke the bread, gave thanks, and gave it to them. And he said, do this. And you can do this with breaking bread, but you also can do this by doing what Jesus was there doing, giving his life in thanks to God and service to others. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus gave this new Passover, and he was the sacrifice. So now verse 21, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Jesus said, I'm giving my life, but here at this table, and, and they, they probably, when they were reclining, they probably had uh, several people at, like three or four people per table. And yet, so it could be, he says, somebody who's at this whole place with us. He could mean somebody who's in this group of three or four with me. But he says, somebody right here among us is the one who's going to betray me. He says, that's not a problem, because what's going to happen to me has been decreed. It's been ordained that I will die an unjust death to rescue people. But he says, woe to that man. Woe to the one through whom it comes. He says, it's decreed that I will die in the place of those who deserve death. Though I don't. That's decreed, but woe to the one through whom it comes. And, and the shock in this celebration is that one of the apostles at the table would be the one who betrays Jesus. It's not the evil outsiders. Somebody right there as they were gathering. And I love the fact that Jesus was intentionally ambiguous. He could have said, Judas is going to do this. But he said it in a way that led them into what I think is a rare moment of humility. When they each wondered, I wonder if that could be me. In a rare moment they wondered, could I be the one who would do that? How could that be? It's amazing that none of them said, you know, Jesus has been a little bit cold to Judas all this time. I bet it's Judas, right? Jesus' treatment was such they had no idea. Jesus intentionally said this in a way that led them all to say, I wonder. And again, a statement that challenged me this week, if one of the apostles chosen by Jesus, living and learning from him for three years, could do it, certainly you and I could. Why do we think, oh no, of course I wouldn't do that. If one of them could, certainly I could. In this celebration, one of Jesus' apostles, one of his chosen ones who had lived with him for three years, one of them who was at the table with him is the one who would betray Jesus. That rare moment of humility, 
didn't last very long. <laughs> Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? This is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. I'm sure it was, ah, I wonder, right? And, and they're trying to figure out who is it that would betray Jesus. And as probably a lot of us would be inclined to do, we look around the room and figure out who could be a little worse than I am, <laughs> right? Well, maybe they're not trying to figure out who's best, but they're saying, well, I've been working harder than that person over there, so at least I'm safe, right? Because they're going to be in trouble first before me. But this quickly turned into, so who is the greatest? Well, who did Jesus you know, call up onto the mountain? And, and it became this debate of who is greatest. And Jesus turned to them and said, this is not what you're supposed to be like. Have you been paying attention? This is not what it's like to follow me. This is not what I'm doing. You shouldn't be like this. And yet Jesus continues. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And I say, do these verses really go with the verses we just looked at? They're arguing about who is greatest, and he says, you've got it so wrong. Even so, he says, you have been with me, and so you will have authority in my kingdom. And in this, we see the apostles completely miss the core of what it is to follow Jesus. And yet they would still have important roles in his kingdom. But it continues, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny the genome. Jesus turns to Simon and says, Satan has asked to sit to all of you. Not just Simon, but Satan is at work. He, he had his way with Judas and Satan is here. He's trying to get all of you to go against Satan is asked to sift all of you. Jesus says, though, I pray for you, Peter, and when you are restored, I want you to encourage and strengthen others. Right, so here we see Satan attacked Peter as well as the others, and Peter would deny even knowing Jesus that day. Deny even knowing him. Yet, he would still have an important role in his kingdom. So then verse 35, Jesus uh, then Jesus asked them, When I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough. He replied. 
Jesus talked to the disciples and said, you know what, I've been taking care of you. I've been guarding you. I've kept you safe. But now, it's going to be more challenging. There's certainly questions in this passage, but clearly Jesus says, I'm not going to protect you the same way that I have been protecting you. Jesus warned the apostles that there were big challenges ahead, as he had been warning them. While the bridegroom was with them, he helped them in a special way, protected them. He says, the time will come when it is much more challenging. And so then we see in Jesus, this last section, the challenge it was for him. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I just stopped there for a second. He turns to his his apostles and says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. (laughs) that interesting? He doesn't say, pray for me. This is really hard right now. (laughs) He says, pray for yourselves. You guys are struggling. But then Jesus prayed for himself in such challenging words. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He said, you guys pray. And he prayed so deeply. But then, next verse, when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. They'd fallen asleep. He says, get up and pray. Get up and pray. We see here that Jesus prayed earnestly and his apostles slept. They couldn't watch and pray with him. They were worn out. When when I look at these verses, I I just want to review what we've just read. The religious leaders sought to kill Jesus, trying to do it privately. Judas was the means to kill him. One of the apostles came, prompted by Satan. So then Jesus and the apostles prepared for the Passover. Jesus here gives a new Passover. He says, I am the sacrifice for this. But then he says, you know, one of you at the table, you're going to betray me. And and for a moment they seem to be okay, but then they completely miss the core of what it is to follow Jesus and the call to humility, the call to service. And then he says that Satan was going to attack Peter and he would deny knowledge of Jesus. Then Jesus warned, you know, it's a challenging road ahead. And Jesus prayed earnestly and the apostles slept. What I see here is all these different forces that are counter to Jesus. We have religious leaders who were trying to kill Jesus and Judas, an apostle, betraying Jesus to them. The apostles completely missing his way. Satan going after the other apostles so the other apostles can't even stay awake to pray with Jesus. Yet he's doing his work. And and I love how these things are put together to show us that Jesus saved people by giving his own life as a saving sacrifice and rising to total victory by his own power. Despite all the attacks, sins, and failings of his enemies, and even of the ones he died to save. And this is so powerful. The heart of Christianity is not good people. The 
part of Christianity is not about the people who have figured out how to do their lives better, how they're more sincere, that they, 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 by concerted effort they follow him. The heart of Christianity is an amazingly good and gracious God. And this passage puts those two things right together. His chosen ones abandoned him. His chosen ones betrayed him and denied him. And that didn't stop anything. The heart of Christianity is an amazingly good and gracious God as God rescues the people who are not good and gracious. And this is the gospel. So here's the drawing. Um, I don't know if you can see here. Uh, we have somebody who's needing to cross a chasm. But it doesn't look like a very solid path across. This rope that is fraying, tied to these little branches that can't hold anything. I don't know if you can see. He's emptying all his pockets of anything that might weigh him down, thinking maybe if I go really fast and not have any extra weight, I could cross this. When we imagine that the work of God is dependent upon people doing well enough, it is a very weak hope. If we think if we can just do our best, do better than we've done, and maybe that will make the work of God go forward, it's a very weak hope, because it's a very weak rope. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I imagine that there are some people who are like that. I do. I read about some people and say, boy, their commitment to Jesus is amazing. They were just good all the time and self-sacrificing. And I think maybe there are some times for some people this just might work. But not for people like me. And no offense, probably not for people like you either. There are some people I might say they it might work for them. But if it's dependent upon people doing well enough, that is a fragile rope. And I don't think it's going to work. And so here's the alternative picture. Like a mighty bridge, the work of God has been completed by the Son of God. The work of God is finished. Jesus said, it is finished, and he meant it. Right? Nothing else is needed, and nothing else can stop the work of God. Not even betrayal, denial, and abandonment. Not even the tireless effort of powerful people not even the attacks of Satan can block the work of God. And so what we do is we walk with confidence across this bridge of God, this bridge of the work of Jesus, this mighty work. We follow Jesus with great boldness. Not because we're faithful and good, but because he is. That's our confidence. Right? Jesus saved people by giving his own life, rising to total victory by his power despite all the failings of both his enemies and the ones he died to save. Because the heart of Christianity is an amazingly good and gracious God. And so this is a key application, is to rejoice in this, to be filled with the reality, with the conviction that this is at the heart of our relationship with God, is the completed, powerful work of Jesus. To rejoice that the core of the gospel is the amazing grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nothing in all creation can stop or spoil the saving work of Jesus. Nothing. Not the religious establishment. 
As much as we struggle when we see people in, in authority in, in Christian denominations and churches and saying, look at the terrible things they've done. And they have. Yet that cannot stop the saving work of Jesus. The sinful betrayal of one of the apostles of Jesus could not stop his work. The denial and abandonment by the apostles of Jesus in the time of his greatest sacrifice could not stop it. There is no human institution, no government, no power anywhere that can get in the way of the work of Jesus. Not even our sins and our failures. Not even what we do. And, and oddly, sometimes I rank those as higher than governments and say, we want to stop Christianity in all their power. But sometimes I think, you know what, I'm not sure the work can go forward because I'm not good enough. So again, a statement helped me so much this week. In Christianity, we do not celebrate our own faithfulness, but the faithfulness of the Lord. In the gospel, we don't celebrate our own faithfulness, but the faithfulness of the Lord. In communion, we don't celebrate our faithfulness. We celebrate the faithfulness of the Lord. In this sense, the gospel at its core is superbounding grace. The sacrifice of God for those who do not deserve it despite their failings and their sin and their rebellion. We celebrate the grace of Jesus, his death in our place, so that we can live in his place. The invitation is to rejoice that the core of the gospel is this amazing grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. To celebrate that Jesus takes our sins and our failings as if they were his own, and he was doing it at the table as they were sinning against him. The sin of people and the grace of God put together in the same event. Jesus takes our sins and our failings. He gives us the blessings and honor that should be his. And all the joy that this is. So where then is boasting? Right? <laughs> the apostles, well, you know what? He invited me up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, so he thinks pretty much of me. And I'm not sure when you last had a special event with Jesus, right? Where is boasting when we realize this? But also, where is the self-loathing that says, oh, I'm no good. He doesn't want me. Well, of course he doesn't, except for his grace. Who does he want? We are all in this together. There is no place for boasting. There's no place for self-loathing. And there's no place for trying to carry our failings. Where then is arguing about which of us is better, which of us is worse, whose, whose ideas are better, whose ideas are worse? Where is judging ourselves or judging one another? It has no place in the gospel. Rather, we rejoice that we, the worst of sinners, are saved by Jesus. We're to rejoice that the core of the gospel is this amazing grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. No matter what anybody else tells us, or if the devil himself comes to accuse us and says, you're not good enough for this. You've let him down too many times. And we have to say, of course I have. But nothing can stop the saving work of our Savior. It is finished. We're to rejoice in that core of the gospel and then to follow Jesus with boldness and courage. And so here the statement, do this in remembrance of me. And I want to just highlight that remembrance. You, you, you know that we will often talk about head, heart, and hands. 
And often I turn remember into a head thing to, to, to think about, to remember something. Um, I love the image of uh, when Noah built the ark and lived in it while the world flooded. And he felt abandoned in the middle of the storm. And, and it's all just going on. But in the very center of the story, we get this powerful statement, God remembered Noah. And I love that because God remembered Noah in head, heart, and hands. If we can say that about God, because God doesn't have a head, heart, and hands. But metaphorically, if we can say God was intellectually aware of Noah. He was thinking about Noah, and he knew what Noah was struggling with, and he knew what was going on. God was aware of Noah, and God cared about Noah. God, in his heart and relationship, was, was, was concerned and God, in his hands, took care of Noah. And he said, I'm going to watch over him, and I'm going to bring an end to this, and I'm going to bless him. God remembered Noah, not just as an intellectual thing, but in the whole of his being. And so we're called to do what Jesus did in remembrance of him, in our heads, in the right understanding of God and of his work and of us, to recognize the task of Christianity does not move forward because God finally found a group of good people. It's not the case at all. right? To, to have a head in remembrance of Jesus is to say in spite of sin and failings and the attacks of Satan, the work of Jesus goes forward. It's to have a heart that worships and trusts. That the work we do, we do out of love, out of worship for him in trust of him, and with hands in action to do what he did in remembrance of him is to follow him. So, expressed this way, Jesus' life of giving himself unreservedly to God for the good of people who didn't deserve it. That's him. Living unreservedly to God. Giving himself unreservedly to God to give uh, for the good of people who didn't deserve it. That should be the model for all those who join him in the supper. To do this in remembrance of him is to follow the path that he walked. Having been saved by grace, we are called to complete obedience. So you celebrate here the gift of God to rescue you. Now do this in remembrance of me. To live like Jesus in, by, and for remembrance of him. To say it again, the heart of Christianity is not good people. The heart of Christianity is an amazingly good and gracious God. And because of that, the work of God is unstoppable. There is no need to worry or fear. Rather, the call is to join his work with courage and boldness. And so the question is, will we trust in that work and join in it? And to be transparent, I need this work. I don't know how to describe to you the challenge it is to recognize as I prepare to preach a sermon like this, I think, am I going to do this well enough? Have I worked hard enough? Am I going to express the words the right way? Do we have the right pieces together for a worship service for this day? Will the technology work? And I think of all these things that I imagine could stop the work of God. And in shame, I realize I keep thinking, if we would just work really hard and well and be patient with each other, maybe God's work could go forward. 
How sad it is. How my heart is drawn away from the core of the gospel. The heart of Christianity, the heart of Christ's church, is not good people who are working hard together. It is an amazingly good and gracious God. And my heart needs to hear that. Maybe yours does too. We're going to take a, a minute to pray in a second, but I'd like to, to ask one other question or to, to suggest something that is, would you ask God for the opportunity to tell this to someone this week? Because I am convinced that the people who have written off Christianity have not written off this. They've written off people who should be better than they are. And we should say to them, of course that's true. But that's not Christianity. The core of the gospel is an amazingly good and gracious God. The core event in Christianity, when Jesus died, it was through the sin of the people he had chosen, and yet the work of God happened. And this is the gospel. Would you ask God for the opportunity to tell somebody this week that you would tell them the glory of God, the goodness of God, especially someone who is fearing that they are too weak for God. Let's pray. Jesus, we do give praise to you for your amazing obedience and goodness and love and for your perfect sacrifice. We thank you that in spite of all the efforts of Satan and all the, the efforts of those with power and authority, even your closest followers who betrayed and denied you, you did it all right. You accomplished our salvation. And truly it is finished. We give you praise. Father, I pray that you would grow in our hearts this deep conviction that your work grows by you by the power of your spirit, by your unstoppable goodness. And I pray that you would empower us to join that work with boldness and courage. So Father, I ask specifically that you would give me and give us the opportunity to declare the gospel, the goodness of our God, to people, maybe to somebody else in this room, maybe to somebody that, that we... Uh, we work with or are in class with or interact for other reasons, I pray that you'd open the door for us to give praise to you, Jesus, our Savior. We rejoice in your amazing goodness, your amazing grace. We thank you for such great love. You are our God, you are our Savior, and you are praised forever. In your name we pray.